Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. In a world of strange disappearances and deaths, occasionally there is one particularly imbued with odd events and bizarreness that lurches out to capture the public imagination and lodge itself into the annals of the truly weird. These are the cases which surround themselves with nearly impenetrable clues and haunt us with inexplicable details and strangeness that seem to get ever more deeply weird the more we look at them and try to understand them. One such unsolved death is the tragic case of a young woman by the name of Elisa Lamb who died under enigmatic Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. M-E-N-T, for the betterment of you. Circumstances, and left behind clues that not only deepen the mystery, but which continue to baffle and stir the imagination and debate to this day. It is a disappearance and death which has launched itself into the pantheon of the most amazingly mysterious, bizarre, and most talked about deaths in modern history, and which is shrouded in shadows of the supernatural high strangeness, and disturbing synchronicity. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself part of the Weirdo family, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode with friends, family, and others in your social media. And thanks in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness a strange, unidentified humanoid creature has been spotted near Mount Vernon just outside of the nation's capital. What is it? What began as a pleasure boating trip for two best friends ended up in a murder and tragedy. Do ghosts lurk deep within the wilderness? I'll share some true ghost stories from park rangers and other outdoor workers that suggests spirits dwell where the living do not. 
Later in the episode, I'll also share a personal story, something that happened to me personally only last night. A weirdo family member tells us about his brother and his brother's girlfriend, who was not the kind of girl you would typically find next door. His brother was dating a witch. And 21-year-old Elisa Lamb's mysterious death at LA's notorious Cecil Hotel remains unsolved years after the eerie events first took place. We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. But rather than me telling you about it, how about I let one of our weirdo family members tell you about it? Kitty sent me a comment saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his my pillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Well, Kitty is trying out her own pillow right now as well, because she heard about them on Weird Darkness and was able to get two premium my pillows for one low price. And so can you. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. Or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Or MyPillow.com. Either way, be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. In January of 2013, Elisa Lam, a 21-year-old Canadian student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, embarked on a solo trip around the west coast of the United States. Her intention was to visit San Diego, then work her way up through Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, and finally San Francisco. And she wrote extensively about her plans on social media sites such as Tumblr and Facebook as well as her own blog. She traveled alone, using trains and buses to creep from one destination to the next. And all in all, it seemed like a rather exciting adventure for the young lady. During the first leg of her West Coast tour, as she liked to call it, Lamb regularly contacted friends and family, as well as posted photos online of herself in various locations, such as the San Diego Zoo and she finally arrived in Los Angeles on January 26th. Lamb checked in to the Cecil Hotel, a modest budget hotel located just a few blocks from the infamous downtrodden Skid Row area of Los Angeles. At this point, things were already beginning to take a turn for the spooky, as Lamb was originally intended to share a room with others, but was moved to her own room when the roommates complained of her certain odd behavior. Then on January 31st, 2013, Elisa Lamb simply disappeared. Social media posts abruptly stopped, and Lamb's daily correspondence with her parents inexplicably ceased. A search was organized, and Lamb's parents flew out to Los Angeles to help with the search efforts as well, and the disappearance would be widely reported in the news yet no evidence was found 
and no one was sure of what had become of Elisa. The police had the entire hotel searched from top to bottom as much as was possible, as well as the roof, and dogs were also used to go through the roof and each floor, but they were unable to pick up any trail of lamb, and nothing was found at the time. It was as if she had stepped off the face of the earth. There were only a few scant clues turned up. Hotel staff reported that lamb had been alone that day but seemingly in good spirits, and a nearby bookstore employee claims that Lamb came in shopping there and that she had been lively and very friendly. Other than that, there was nothing. Increasingly frustrated authorities began posting flyers around the area imploring people to come forward with the missing woman's whereabouts, and in the meantime came forth with what would be the first bizarre piece of the puzzle of one of the weirdest unsolved deaths in recent memory in the form of a curious, creepy piece of elevator surveillance video footage which seems to be the last time anyone saw Lamb alive. The footage is bizarre, to say the least. In the video, Lamb can be seen entering the elevator wearing a red zippered hooded sweatshirt over a gray t-shirt, as well as black shorts and sandals. Her behavior is decidedly odd and erratic right from the start. After getting onto the elevator, she frantically presses some of the elevator buttons, but nothing happens and the elevator doors don't shut. She seems agitated about something and also weary as if someone is following her. When the elevator doors fail to close, she peeks outside of the door several times, looks both ways, and then quickly moves to the wall of the elevator and cowers out of sight as she keeps her eyes fixed towards the outside hallway. She also cautiously exits the elevator and seems to playfully hop before stepping back into the elevator and then out again. The whole time, her hands are in her pockets. She then steps almost out of sight around the corner and pulls her hands out of her pockets to put them up to her ears before stepping back into the elevator and frantically pushing buttons again, seemingly to methodically push them in a line up and down the panel. She paces about and puts her hands up to her ears and goes out of the elevator again as if expecting someone. At this point, she can clearly be seen talking to someone who is off-camera, as well as making a series of strange gestures, rubbing her forearms together, moving her hands and twisting them about in strange, almost arcane-looking movements and gesticulations, wringing her hands together and weaving her arms out to her sides with fingers outstretched, as she also seems to bow and rock back and forth slightly. It should be noted that the elevator doors remain open this entire time. Lamb then walks to the left and off-camera. After a few moments, the doors of the elevator finally do close, almost as if on cue. And this is the last time anyone saw her alive. The strange, rather disturbing video immediately went viral as soon as it was released, with its spooky, unsettling imagery and almost horror movie-like quality. What was the meaning of Lamb's odd behavior and gestures, and why didn't the elevator doors close the whole time until after she had stepped off camera for good, as if intentionally timed that way. 
In light of the mysterious disappearance, a lot of theories made the rounds at the time. One was that she was trying to escape some unseen pursuer who was following her, which would explain her clearly evasive behavior and apparent desire to hide. Another was that she was high on some kind of party drug such as ecstasy. It would later become known that Lamb had long suffered from depression and bipolar personality disorder and that maybe she was having some sort of breakdown or psychotic episode in the footage. No one knew. Indeed, we still don't. But the video would take an even more urgent, sinister quality when coupled with the gruesome discovery that would be made not long after. A few weeks after Lamb's strange disappearance, hotel residents began to complain of low water pressure and strange-tasting discolored water, and on February 19, 2013, a worker was sent to check out the hotel's water tanks, which lie suspended 10 feet over a heavily secured area with alarm systems in place. When one of the water tanks was opened, inside was found the waterlogged corpse of Elisa Lamb, finally found nearly three weeks after she had mysteriously disappeared. She was completely nude, covered in a sand-like substance, with her clothes and belongings bobbing about in the murky water beside her. It was later determined that she had been floating about and decomposing in the fetid tank for weeks. This was very odd on its own, because the rooftop was fairly well secured with a myriad of alarm systems, none of which had been set off. Furthermore, the tank was in a difficult-to-reach spot and there was no ladder at the scene, meaning that the slight 5'5", 120-pound Elisa Lamb would have had to have gruelingly hauled herself up to the tank, undress, and then plunge herself in along with her stuff. It seemed strange that she would have been able to get into the water tank to begin with, and no one could figure any of it out. Speculation and questions at the time raged. How could such a slight woman have managed to get past the security measures, drag herself up into the water tank, and then close the heavy door to lock herself in to drown? Why had she taken off her clothes, yet taken them with her into the tank? Did she do this on her own, or was this foul play? The strange circumstances in which Lamb's body was found would only propel the case further into the realms of the bizarre and the mysterious death began to draw around it a cloak of various strangeness and spooky synchronicity. First was that weird surveillance footage, which took on a new, menacing quality with the macabre discovery of the body. With the finding of the body, the odd elevator video footage was once again thrust into the limelight and subjected to intense scrutiny. For some, it merely showed a frustrated young woman trying to get the elevator to work, with the exiting, re-entering, and weird hand gestures merely a way to try and get the elevator's sensors to register her so the doors would close, and her agitation normal for someone having technical difficulties with a machine. However, if this is the case, then why does she clearly seem to be hiding from someone, and who is she talking to off-screen? Also, why does the door appear to work only after she has left and not in the several minutes we see her on video? 
Another idea is that this was some sort of breakdown or episode related to her ongoing depression. Lamb had long been struggling with mental health issues, which she often lamented online in her blog, which had as its slogan the haunting quote by author Chuck Palahniuk, you're always haunted by the idea you're wasting your life. Lamb had been taking several different medications for her condition, including Welbutin and Lamistil, and seemed to be coping well for the most part, but at one point she claims that she had a relapse, although it is unclear what sort of relapse she is talking about. Her blog offers other clues to her mental condition as well. Her tone seems to fluctuate wildly from happy and outgoing to morose, brooding, and self-deprecating, depending on the day and sometimes even within the same post. She also mentions having been raped at one point, and the way she breaches the subject of her assault seems to be eerily detached, matter-of-fact, and peppered with dark humor. As for her actual trip to California, she seemed to be very upbeat and excited about that, often gushing to friends and family about all the places she planned on seeing. It is speculated that this depression and mental instability had spiraled into full-blown bipolar disorder and psychosis, and that Lamb ended up killing herself in a fit of madness. Perhaps she had gone off her medication and finally lost her grip on sanity, and what we see in the video is her finally losing her hold upon it. However, many friends and family have pointed out that she had been very happy and well-adjusted during her trip, and that she'd been looking forward to going back to school. She also mentions in one blog post that she's in love with someone. Although she had obvious mental health issues and was battling depression, and there was the matter of her original hotel roommates complaining that she was acting strangely, there don't seem to be any red flags that mark Lamb as being particularly suicidal throughout her blog posts in contact with her friends and family prior to and during her travels. Also, if it was a suicide, then again, how did she manage to get herself into the water tank? Access to the tank was very restricted, with various barricades barring entry and alarm systems that were later determined to have still been in perfect working order at the time of Lamb's death, yet they had not been set off. The water tank lid was also extremely heavy, being difficult for even one grown man to budge, let alone a slight woman like Lamb, making it seem highly unlikely she could have gotten into the tank on her own. By all accounts, the tank was intentionally difficult to access for the very purpose of keeping people from wandering in and contaminating the hotel's water supply. Indeed, the water tank was so difficult that authorities ended up cutting it open to reach the body. Even now, no one is quite sure exactly how Lamb had gotten to the roof and managed to get into the tank. There are other theories to Lamb's death as well. It has been suggested that she may have been under the influence of some sort of drug, yet this theory is hampered by the fact that toxicology reports turned up no signs of drugs or alcohol in her system, and Lamb had absolutely no history of drug or alcohol abuse to begin with. The whole story of Lamb's autopsy report itself also has a rather sinister undercurrent. From when the body was found, it took four months and many delays before the report was finally released, 
even though it was originally announced that it would be released the week after her death. Additionally, authorities were strangely non-transparent, evasive, and uncooperative with press during the entire ordeal. In the end, it was officially announced that there had been no signs of trauma on the body and no evidence of foul play or drug overdose. Lamb's death was ruled an accidental drowning, and it was surmised that she had gone to the tank on her own, possibly in a mentally unstable state, and then either entered or could not get back out or jumped in to commit suicide. It was also speculated that the tank might have been full when she entered and that the water level had dropped through water use to the point where she could not have gotten out again even if she'd wanted to. So the question is, why did it take four months and numerous delays for authorities to come up with that? It seems like something that could have been determined rather quickly, so why all the major delays? Also, why were authorities so evasive and obscure about Lamb's death in general? Several residents of the fourth floor of the Cecil Hotel, where Lamb had been staying, later claimed that the police had not once interviewed them while the investigation was taking place. That certainly seems a bit odd, doesn't it? This has all caused some to consider that perhaps there was some sort of cover-up being perpetrated and that there is a conspiracy permeating the Lamb case. This has further been bolstered by claims that the elevator video footage has been tampered with and edited. Indeed, it has been pointed out by some astute amateur sleuths that the original full video appears to have been discreetly replaced with a shorter version, missing an entire minute of footage, and that some parts appear to have been slowed down or changed in some way. There is indeed a time jump that cannot be seen in the video, which does seem odd. If any of that is true, then why was the video altered? Was it to hide something? And if so, what? No one really knows. Obviously, with all the facts concerning the difficulty in accessing the water tank, the bizarre surveillance video, the delayed autopsy report, and Lamb's mental state at the time, there are many who absolutely do not buy the official report, and the case only gets weirder from here. Another piece of evidence that has turned up is another piece of hotel surveillance footage that shows Lamb entering the building with two men under mysterious circumstances. One police detective on the case described the footage thus, We did see her come in with two gentlemen. She had, they had a box, gave it to her. She went up into her to the elevator. We never saw them again on video. This has led to the idea that perhaps these men had something to do with Lamb's demise. But there is no hard evidence to that effect, and the footage remains merely an odd curiosity. The main piece of evidence is overwhelmingly the final elevator footage of Lamb, and of course the extremely odd behavior displayed in the video has led to ideas that Lamb was not suffering from a mental breakdown at all, but was rather in thrall to some supernatural force or trying to escape from one. This is where things take a turn from inexplicable and odd into downright bizarre territory, as such a far-out supernatural explanation doesn't seem so incredibly absurd in light of the Cecil Hotel's rather dark and ominous history. The Cecil Hotel 
originally started as a moderately upscale hotel in the 1920s for business clientele. But when the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, the area around the hotel deteriorated, and the hotel devolved into a cheap accommodation for a variety of riffraff, transients, and unsavory characters. Among the shady characters who came through the Cecil Hotel's doors were two of history's most notorious serial killers, Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez and Jack Unterwedger. Ramirez stayed in a room on the top floor of the hotel in 1985, at a time when he was very active, claiming 13 victims during his stay there. After his grim work, allegedly Ramirez would come back to the hotel to dump his bloodied clothes in the hotel dumpster and then enter through a back door. Unterwedger was an Australian serial killer who went on a murderous rampage across several countries, killing prostitutes, and he also stayed at the Cecil Hotel in 1991, during which time he killed three prostitutes in the Los Angeles area – Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Sherry Ann Long, who he beat, sexually assaulted, and strangled with their own bras. Authorities believe that Unterwedger chose the Cecil Hotel specifically because Ramirez had stayed there. There was also a long history of numerous suicides at the Cecil Hotel, especially during the 1950s and 60s when it was a popular spot for people to end their own lives by jumping from the windows of the upper floors. In one instance, a Pauline Auten, 27 years old, hurled herself out of the ninth floor window and landed on a passerby, George Giannini, 65 years old. Both were killed instantly. In addition to all of these suicides was the murder of one of the hotel's residents, a Pigeon Goldie Osgood, so nicknamed because he often fed the pigeons at a nearby park. On June 4, 1964, he was found dead in his hotel room after having been beaten, raped, stabbed, and strangled not necessarily in that order. No perpetrator was ever found and his murder remains unsolved to this day. Another famous rumor is that the Cecil Hotel was one of the last places where Elizabeth Short, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia, stayed before her grisly unsolved murder in 1947, although LA crime historian Kim Cooper has said that Short in fact never stayed at the hotel and that this story is just a rumor. In her murder, Short was found dead in Leimert Park, Los Angeles, and had been drained of blood, cut in half at the waist, mutilated, and had a smile cut into her face with a knife. Although the horrific crime has never been solved, it is thought to have perhaps been a ritual killing. Considering this sinister history, it has been speculated that Lamb could have been under the influence of, or even full-on possessed by, some sort of malevolent supernatural force inhabiting the hotel. This could explain her erratic behavior on the final surveillance footage taken of her, as well as the fact that the elevator doors wouldn't close. Alternatively, she may have been trying to escape some entity that was stalking her through the halls. According to these theories, Lamb was eventually killed due to being in Thrall 2, possessed by or captured by these forces and that is how she was able to end up in the tank. Many have even claimed that if you look hard enough, 
you can see a shadow or ghostly form in the video. Of course, there is no concrete evidence really that there was any supernatural aspect to Lamb's death, but the strange video footage, the Cecil Hotel's menacing history, and the weird circumstances under which Lamb's body was found certainly make this a spooky theory, to be sure. To top off all of this strangeness and talk of haunted or cursed hotels are the myriad strange coincidences and instances of synchronicity surrounding Lamb's death, to the point that it is hard to even know where to start. One such case concerns an outbreak of a drug-resistant form of tuberculosis that rampaged through the seedy nearby Skid Row area around the time of Lamb's death. In a chilling display of startling synchronicity, the field screening kit used by medical personnel during the outbreak was called the LAM-ELISA test, or enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. Tuberculosis probably had nothing to do with Lamb's death, but it must be noted that one of the drugs used to treat the disease, called Isoniazid, has the possible side effect of confusion and abnormal behavior. Whether TB had anything to do with Lamb's death or not, it's hard not to be at least a little spooked by these coincidences. Another coincidence that has made heavy rounds in the debate of Lamb's death is the similarity between this death and the 2002 Japanese horror movie Dark Water. In the film, a young girl dies when she falls into the water tank of a run-down apartment building while trying to retrieve her dropped bag. She drowns, and the water from the tank leaks down into the building below to haunt it with her spirit. The movie saw an American remake in 2005, which stars Jennifer Connelly and Dugray Scott. The American version further adds to the weird coincidences with two of the characters' names. In the film, one of the characters is named Dahlia, like the Black Dahlia said to have stayed at the hotel, and another character is named Cecilia, similar to the name Cecil Hotel. Both movies also contain scenes of mysteriously malfunctioning elevators. Is this all just weird coincidence, or is there anything more to it? Who knows? Other bits of weirdness that have come out of the woodwork as the video is relentlessly picked apart and studied is the sequence of buttons Lamb pushes in the elevator, which many observers agree seems to be the numbers 14, 10, 7, 4, B, and block hold, in that order. Several posters on forums on the matter claim that Lamb is playing an urban legend game called the Elevator Game that is supposedly popular in South Korea in which a person is said to be able to travel to different dimensions if they follow a set of rules and an order of button pushing while riding an elevator. A perhaps even weirder theory is that these numbers correspond to the Bible's John chapter 4 and then verses 7, 10, and 14 of the New King James Version Bible, which read as follows. John 4, 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. John 4.10 said, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And John 4 verse 14, But whomever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, 
but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Again, is this just simple coincidence? Or people reading too much into things? After all, people all over the internet have found amalgams of the name Elisa Lamb hiding in everything from the Bible to Greek tragedies and writings by Plato to works by the infamous mystic Aleister Crowley. But it seems that if one looks hard enough, they can find an amalgam to any name, in anything, and make whatever connection or assign any importance they want to it. Is there any meaning to these coincidences, or just the meaning people give them? Or is there really no such thing as true coincidence, and real meaning is to be found buried here if one is able to find it? One last strange little mystery to the case of Elisa Lamb is that her Tumblr account continued to post pictures up to six months after she died, and there was an update to her blog after her death as well. While certainly creepy, authorities have speculated that this is probably just because she had set up her account to automatically post images for a given amount of time. Whether that's the case or not, it is still definitely an eerie detail. The Elisa Lamb case has become one of the most haunting, debated, and intensely picked apart mysterious deaths in recent memory, and for good reason. What brought this young woman with such a promising future to this hotel? What happened to her in that video footage? Are we looking at a woman having a psychotic breakdown or is there something more ominous and malevolent going on? Was her death a suicide? A murder? or something even more mysterious? How did she find herself in that water tank, and why? And what of all the disturbing coincidences and unsettling synchronicity orbiting her death? Just what in the world happened to Elisa Lamb? These are questions that we will likely never know the answers to, and Elisa Lamb's bizarre death will probably remain forever mysterious and unresolved to any satisfactory degree. A strange unidentified humanoid creature has been spotted near Mount Vernon, just outside the nation's capital. Has one of Washington, D.C.'s reptilian swamp creatures crawled out of her office for a bit of sightseeing during the congressional summer recess? The sighting reportedly occurred a couple miles north of Mount Vernon. Despite its name, Mount Vernon is not a mountain. It is the former plantation home of George Washington, situated on the Potomac River, Today, Mount Vernon is an independently owned historical attraction. On July 31st, a motorist driving near Mount Vernon spotted what appeared to be a deer by the side of the road, until it stood up and ran across the road. MUFON Ohio investigator Ron McGlone received a report of the sighting recently, which was published by the Mount Vernon News. The witness is described as credible and requested to remain anonymous. Whoever they are, the eyewitness says the creature ran out of a cornfield and across the highway at a tremendous rate of speed, crossing the highway in only a few steps. According to the witness, a creature appeared to stand seven to eight feet tall, hairless with light brown skin, 
and possessing a tall, slender body, arms and legs in small diameter, hands and feet looking oversized for its body proportion, small neck with oval, elongated head. The witness also said that the humanoid figure had large, black, oval-shaped eyes similar to everyone's favorite gray aliens. As it stands now, this is a lone, unsubstantiated sighting. The Knox County Sheriff's Department has not reported any other sightings from the same area on the same dates. Might this merely have been a wildlife encounter? With the speed which full-grown male deer can run, it could be easy to mistake one for something else if it ran quickly in front of your car. Then again, who knows what it might have been. The Washington, D.C. area attracts all sorts of strange visitors, after all. Could one of our reptilian alien overlords have gotten a bit too carried away and gotten separated from their tour group? Probably not. We all know reptilian aliens aren't really the ones in charge, after all, right? Another type of terrifyingly vile creature is the spineless, soulless corporate shill hiding inside a suit and person mask. They typically aren't seen in their true form unless you've got a pair of those sunglasses from They Live. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the paranormal audiobook Your Haunted Lives – True Tales of the Paranormal by G. Michael Vasey, a collection of creepy, often downright chilling, true experiences of the paranormal submitted by visitors to the My Haunted Life 2 website. The tales have been carefully selected and edited and range from apparitions to hauntings to demons through to the downright bizarre. This terrific collection of true stories of the paranormal will keep you looking over your shoulder. Your Haunted Lives – True Tales of the Paranormal Written by G. Michael Vasey Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample by clicking the link in the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com My brother was dating a witch. I know, it's a strange way to start a story, but it's true. She was into witchcraft and other pagan practices, if my memory serves me correctly. You see, I was a teenager, I'm now nearly 30 years old, and this story still rings vividly in my mind. He's my older brother, there are nearly nine years between us. Despite this age difference and our very different lifestyles, I still looked up to him. His stint in the Marines was a difficult time for me and my parents, long periods of time without contact with him. A base in Japan was his home for a year before he returned to the States. In all of this, I'm thankful to God that he never saw combat. After his military career ended, he returned home and lived with my parents and I for some time while trying to get his footing without the Marine Corps planning his days and paying his bills. It could have been months or years that he was home when this girl shows up in his life. I wish I could remember dates, but those are the parts that stuck with me. I met her a few times. I think she even met my parents. She was a beautiful girl in her twenties with dark black hair and caramel-colored skin. As a teenage boy, fear was definitely not my first reaction to seeing her. 
My brother was often willing to tell me of his exploits, probably basking in the idea that his little brother wanted to hear them and would soak up every word. One day he told me about his girlfriend's uh, extracurricular activities. He never went into great detail about all of her practices as a witch. I'm not sure he knew all of them, but one event he told me stuck out. They were hanging out with some friends one night, likely drinking and partaking in other libations, when she decided to get out a Ouija board for some entertainment. My brother was no stranger to the dangers and stories surrounding this game, as my family and I are devout Christians and we denounce such practices. Obviously, my brother no longer shared this view, or he just didn't care. They began to play the game. It's at this point that I should stop to mention that this girl he was dating was of Mexican descent. Not that her ethnicity would normally be important for a story like this, but this case is different. They placed their hands on the planchette and began speaking to the board. Her goal was to contact her deceased grandfather. She later described him as a mean old man, he was a racist old codger, and he apparently didn't hide it. They received some feedback from the game board, but nothing remarkable. Later that night, after they put the game away, my brother went to sleep. Suddenly, he awoke to terrible pain in his stomach. He was sure he wasn't drinking so much that it had made him sick, but he figured to be safe he'd better head to the bathroom. All he remembers after that is waking up with his face on the bathroom floor, pants around his feet, and an excruciating pain in his stomach. He had never felt this before. It wasn't nausea or anything that normal intestinal complications would cause. He knew this pain. His time spent in combat training allowed for an education on what the source was. This awful pain was identical to the pain you get from being punched square in the gut. An ache accompanied by difficulty breathing, like the wind was knocked out of him. Bending over to see his abdomen, he sees a red mark formed directly over the source of the pain. He composed himself as the pain subsided, cleaned up, and went to tell his girlfriend what happened. Early that morning, after telling her the story, she decided to get the Ouija board back out. Her suspicions were confirmed when they addressed her dead grandfather again. Grandpa, was that you that attacked my boyfriend in the bathroom? Did you punch him in the stomach? The planchette moved. Yes, it said. She then asks, why would you attack him? The planchette moves again, this time spelling out two words. White boy. I guess my brother told me this story for another reason. I think he wanted to break the news to me that he had broken up with her. It wasn't over this Ouija board incident, though. He explained that shortly before returning to my parents' house, he had been in a fight with his girlfriend. They were arguing with one another, escalating their voices and frequency of strong verbiage, when she picks up a knife and lunges at him, trying to kill him. Providence and some keen military training allowed him to evade her murder attempt. I don't know how much her witchcraft played into those two incidents, but the third is what convinced me that they were all linked. Before the Ouija board and before the murder attempt, I was experiencing strange things in the house. They actually became so frequent and occurred in such clear pattern, I was able to make predictions by these events. For example, one day I'm alone at home and I hear one of the support beams in our basement gong. 
We had a finished basement and I spent a lot of time down there. We would often stub our toes or bang our knees on this metal beam, each time sending a gong sound throughout the entire house. This time was no different, except I was home by myself. I locked the basement door. I didn't want to know what that was. The very next day, my brother came home. He would spend two or three weeks away from home, never calling or getting in touch with my parents. We had no way of knowing where he was or when he was coming home. He would come home, stay for a few days, and then disappear again. The next incident was when I was sleeping. I didn't even know it happened until my mom told me about it after I got home from school the next afternoon. She said I was sleepwalking and apparently stood in their bedroom doorway just staring at them. She asked me what was wrong and I turned around and went back to bed. This wouldn't be strange normally. I do have a few sleep disorders, but this time was different because my brother came home the same day that she was telling me about my sleepwalking. I began to get suspicious that something was wrong, but I wasn't sure what. The next time it happened, I was home with my mom and she was in the other room. I was watching TV in the living room. Then, all of a sudden, I heard the gong of the support beam in the basement again. Only this time it was followed by the sound of someone running up the stairs. I hustled into the room my mom was in and asked if she heard it. She had, but thought that it was me down there. It was at this point I told her what I had experienced before, along with these events seemingly being correlated with my brother's sporadic returns. She didn't believe that these two things had to do with anything. Until the next day. You see, I told her that my brother would return that next day. And he did. She believes me now. I only made the connection to my brother's witchcraft-practicing girlfriend when he told me about his two frightening experiences when he returned just as I predicted. In June 1891, two young men from Washington, D.C., Edward A. Ned Hannigan and Thornton J. Tony Haynes, traveled to Fort Monroe on the Virginia Peninsula for a few days of recreation. They were close friends, both were young men of high social standing from prominent military and political families. Tony Haynes was the son of Colonel Peter C. Haynes of the Army Engineer Corps and the brother of Lieutenant John P. Haynes, 3rd Artillery, both stationed at Fort Monroe. Ned Hannigan was the grandson of former Indiana Senator Edward Hannigan and, on his mother's side, General Thomas Nelson, who had served as minister to Chile and minister to Mexico. The two men went boating the afternoon of June 12th in Chesapeake Bay in an open boat described as a 28-foot canoe. The boat had sails, but the day was calm. Hannigan was rowing and Haynes sculling. They were about 150 feet from shore when a storm began to roll in. Several witnesses on shore were watching the boat, wondering if it would make it to shore before the squall. They seemed to be working at cross-purposes, with Hannigan trying to row them into shore and Haynes continuing to scull them out. A witness heard one of them say, I don't care if we get inside. Haynes suddenly turned and fired two shots at Hannigan in quick succession. Hannigan fell slowly back into the boat, then raised himself up with his arm on the gunwale. Witnesses heard him say, Help! Help! 
on the shore there, this man has shot and killed me, or some variation of those words. Those watching from shore did not believe it at first and thought Haynes and Hannigan were just pulling a prank. But when Haynes brought the boat in, he surrendered himself to the fort commander. Hannigan had been shot through the heart. Haynes claimed that he had fired in self-defense. He said that Hannigan had raised his oar to him and felt his life was threatened. Several witnesses had seen the shooting from the shore, though. Only one saw Hannigan raise his oar. Questions were raised as to why Haynes would take a revolver to go rowing and why would he fire it twice if it was self-defense. The murder trial of Thornton Haynes that September drew huge crowds, partly because Senator Daniel W. Voorhees of Indiana, known to be a great orator, would be assisting the defense, also because women, who reportedly made up at least half of the crowd, were fascinated by Tony Haynes. Oratory on both sides of the case was strong and impassioned, but when the jury returned after four hours of deliberation, they found Haynes not guilty. Whatever it was that swayed the jury in Haynes' trial did not sway society around Fort Monroe. Some of the officers were aloof to the family while others continued their relations with the colonel and his wife but refused to recognize the son in any way. Mrs. Haynes' aggressive attempts to re-establish her son in society gradually alienated all of her formerly sympathetic friends. Tony Haynes was so upset at being shunned by the fort that he sent a letter to the Secretary of War proposing that the ostracizing and slights toward his family be stopped. He added that if nothing were done officially, he would take the matter into his own hands and put an end to it himself. Reportedly, the Secretary of War forwarded that letter to the President, who handed the matter to the Secret Service. They stationed an agent near the house who diligently shadowed Tony Haynes. Eventually, the Secretary of War showed the letter to Colonel Haynes. The Colonel assured the Secretary that the letter had been written without his knowledge and added that he had been forced to the melancholy conclusion that his son was insane. Colonel Haynes requested a transfer and was reassigned to Portland, Maine. Lieutenant John P. Haynes also requested a transfer and was sent to Fort McHenry, Baltimore. Tony Haynes reportedly left on his own for South America. In our brightly lit cities and cozy homes, the idea of ghosts might seem outlandish. But in the deep woods, miles from civilization, the paranormal seems far more possible. Do ghosts lurk deep within the wilderness? Here are five true ghost stories from park rangers and other outdoor workers that suggest spirits dwell where the living do not. Flying Boulders When I was doing trail clearing, there was a lot of strange stuff. One night I was camped by a lake, miles from even the nearest road, when a boulder just flew into the lake from the other side. Then another, then another. The boulders looked to be several hundred pounds and the lake exploded when they hit. They looked wider and taller than me, six foot one. I didn't really sleep that night, but my hatchet and K-Bar were my cuddle buddies. Jerked Around This happened in the desert of Utah. I was a wilderness guide and lived out of my truck, so I camped nearly every night. I was totally used to weird noises, twigs cracking, whatever. 
One night it was extremely calm and quiet, but there was a weird vibe in the air. A couple friends and I were on BLM land in Utah near Moab and we had just put out the fire and laid our bags out. Just as I was starting to fade out, something grabbed me by my wrist and jerked my arms straight up into the air. I sat up immediately and two of my friends bolted up at the same time. It happened to all of us and we couldn't explain it. Nothing else happened, but still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I think about it. The Screaming Woman I'm a wildland firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service. This story is from an old supervisor of mine that I believe completely. The setting is 2004 or so in the Hell's Canyon area of Middle Idaho. My supervisor's crew had been working all day and were going to be working through the night as well. An assistant superintendent, he was out scouting ahead on an ATV. He was working his way down a logging road that had clearly not been used in some time when a bobcat appeared in the middle of the road. The thing stood there for a good ten seconds, screamed at him, and then scampered up a nearby tree. He found this odd but not particularly unsettling. Half a mile or so down the road, he found a small cabin. This was also odd, as he was working on federal land and no private structures should have been there. Upon investigation, he saw that all the windows had been boarded shut. The doorknob had been punched out and secured to a hole drilled into the log frame by a chain. Someone did not want anything getting in or out of that cabin. Unsettled, he hopped on his ATV and headed back up the road, where the bobcat had been he found a Native American woman in a badly tattered nightgown. He yelled at her and asked if she needed help. She just screamed at him, the same scream as the cat, and climbed up the tree faster than any human had a right to. Obviously, my supervisor got out of there as fast as he could, unsure of who or what he had seen. He asked a local guy about the cabin. A local Native American heard them talking and said, my supervisor had seen a skinwalker. Paying their respect. I was a staunch non believer in ghosts until I saw. We were driving down a rural Kentucky road with a full carload when all of a sudden the driver turned off the radio and all the guys removed their hats. Everyone was dead quiet. I tried to ask what was going on and got shushed. About a mile ahead, the radio and hats were put back on and everyone behaved normally again. I then asked what was going on. They told me a child had died on that stretch of road and will haunt people that don't respect it when they drive through. I was like, yeah, right, they're just trying to scare me. On the way back, the guys in the car did not turn off the radio or remove their hats, so I believed my suspicions of trickery were correct. That is, until I began to feel a dampness on the knees of my pants. I asked if anyone else was experiencing the same thing, and while they weren't, they did notice two small child-sized handprints on the rear window. I would have thought they were planted except the expressions on my friends' faces told me otherwise. When we got to our destination, the handprints were still there, along with two perfect feet marks in the condensation on the back of the car. A Winter Apparition For about two years, I worked as an instructor at a therapeutic wilderness program in western North Carolina. 
I was in charge of at-risk youth, and my job included all the responsibilities and nuances associated with that. Shifts ran 16 days straight, on the clock 24-7 at that time, and all spent backpacking. My second winter there, I was with the group at our primitive base camp. It was basically a collection of different yurt camps on the grounds of an old Christian camp. It had just snowed that evening, and a fresh blanket had covered camp in the hours since we laid down for bed. At about 1 a.m., a student woke me to go pee. I was required to stay awake until he got back. He did his duty, then returned to the yurt. There's somebody out there, he whispered nonchalantly. Huh? I said. I saw a guy up by the fire pit just now. Dude in a flannel shirt just standing there. I got up and looked out the yurt window. Nothing. I figure he was probably just out of it, and we went back to sleep. About an hour or so later, I had to pee. I slipped my camp shoes on and walked outside the yurt. Upon returning, I glanced over to the fire pit and saw a man standing there in the moonlight looking at me. It was so bright I could see the plaid pattern on the flannel. I immediately went for my brand new high-powered hand light and cast 900 lumens at him. He vanished before the beam hit him. Just gone. I woke up a co-instructor and we searched the camp to make sure another group didn't have a run in progress or something like that, but there was nobody. Even more unsettling than that, there's not a single footprint in the fresh snow around camp. Many times throughout history, the American legal system has allowed cases where penalties were imposed on individuals for murder where no act of homicide was actually carried out by the accused. While this typically has to do with those who are wrongly accused of a crime, there are some instances that fall outside what might be deemed ordinary. One controversial incident in recent years involved four teenagers from Elkhart, a town north of Indianapolis, Indiana, who, while attempting to burglarize a home they thought was empty, were fired on by a homeowner sleeping upstairs. One of the four teens was shot and killed during the incident, and following the arrest and trial of the remaining three, each were convicted of murder and sentenced to five decades at a regional correctional facility. They may not have pulled the trigger, IndyStar.com reported of the incident, but as far as the law is concerned, the rash decision to try to score some cash turned them into murderers. Perhaps the only thing more unusual than a group of individuals being sentenced to murder despite having never committed an act of homicide would be when a dead person is accused of the crime instead. Boston Globe reports that a Baltimore police detective investigating the shooting death of a popular 19-year-old high school student wrote to top homicide commanders that she'd cracked the case. The detective, Jill Beauregard Navarro, had an unusual story to tell. The victim, Victorious Swift, was purportedly the target of an attempted robbery by 44-year-old Charles Frazier, who was attacked by the teenager. Swift, it turns out, was a boxer. In a panic, Frazier shot Swift and later told others in the community about what he had done. It would otherwise seem like a cold case closed, if not for one outstanding detail. Frazier, the accused, was also dead. His body, Boston Globe reports, was found within two months of Swift's killing, 
though not before he could be charged with the crime. The result had been a circumstance known in law enforcement as closed by exception, which entails reasons beyond the control of law enforcement preventing an arrest, despite there being ample evidence for charges and prosecution of a suspect. Hence, the Globe ran the story with the curious headline, Bodies on Bodies, Baltimore Police Increasingly Accusing the Dead of Murder. We aren't talking about zombies here, of course. Still, such circumstances raise interesting questions about the rights of the deceased and what can be done when a deceased individual is a suspect in a crime they committed while living. In many states, if an individual has passed away, law enforcement can release information about them, although certain states – Texas comes to mind here – may continue to withhold information from the public. Often, in cases where it is legal to release such information, there are authorization processes one must go through in order to obtain the deceased person's data. Things get stranger still, though, when the deceased individual is the one attempting to obtain recognition for their rights. Again, while this may sound like the kind of thing only a zombie could do, another interesting legal circumstance arose a number of years ago in Ohio that involved such a query. In Ohio, a law known as the Presumed Descendants Law allows for the presumption of the death of a person if the individual in question has 1. disappeared and hasn't been heard from for five years or more, 2. if they disappeared within five years but were exposed to a specific peril or death, or 3. if the individual was declared dead under the Federal Missing Persons Act as a result of having served in the armed forces. This law became problematic for Donald Eugene Miller Jr., who after meeting the aforementioned criteria was declared legally dead in 1994. Then, a number of years later when he appeared in court attempting to prove that he was, in fact, still alive, the judge in question, the same judge incidentally who presided over the previous determination of his death, now sat before Miller, explaining that despite what appeared to be reasonable evidence of his existence after all these years, the law still maintained that he was, in fact, dead. A similar incident was reported more recently out of Romania, where 63-year-old Constantin Reliu was pronounced deceased by a court of law after having left his wife a number of years ago upon discovering that she had been unfaithful. Having broken all ties with the deceitful spouse, she eventually reported him missing and he was presumed dead after a number of years. During this time, Constantin had been working in Turkey, but was eventually deported. Upon returning to Romania, he learned of his death and, despite appealing to judges, found similar difficulty to that of Donald Miller in convincing judges of his survival. The appeal period for contesting the declaration had passed, judges told him, and he was denied the appeal and therefore must apparently remain legally deceased. In such circumstances, one might expect that common sense would prevail over the law, but it's pretty obvious that's not always the case. In other words, Sometimes it's hard to find justice for the dead, even while they are still among the living.
Well, I guess it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that, after three years of hosting the Weird Darkness podcast, something paranormal or strange would eventually happen to me. And that's how I would describe last night. My bride and I sleep in separate bedrooms because early in our marriage I was working nights, she was working days, and we just could never get used to having someone else in the bed with us. Add to that my snoring, need for some noise in the background and only a sheet with a ceiling fan, while Robin needs complete quiet and a dozen blankets, and you'll understand why we have the sleeping arrangements we have. But we still love each other immensely and visit each other a lot. It's only the actual sleeping that is in separate rooms. Ever since I got a CPAP machine a few years ago, Robin doesn't hear me snore which is a good thing, except that sometimes her mind gets away from her and suddenly she wonders if I've died and I'm no longer breathing, so she'll occasionally look in on me to make sure my chest is going up and down. Typically, she does this in the early evening after I've already gone to bed and she's getting ready to do so herself, or if she's been up in the morning and I'm still sleeping for a long time, but she never does this in the middle of the night, at least not to my knowledge. Last night, I was sleeping, as usual, and heard my bedroom door slowly open, and I heard Robin slowly walk up to my bed and stand over me. I opened one of my eyes to confirm what I assumed, and I saw her silhouette quietly standing over me. I assumed she was once again just checking on me as she had before, or perhaps she had a bad dream and just needed some comfort knowing that I was in the house. After a few moments, I began to question whether or not it was actually my bride in front of me that I was seeing. My room's extremely dark, and there is no light coming in aside from a very small section above the window where my room darkening curtains don't cover. So it was only a faint outline of Robin that I was seeing, or thought I was seeing. I sensed this may not be Robin, so instead of acknowledging her presence in my room by saying, I love you, I just stayed quiet and pretended to sleep. There was no way she could have seen my one eye open in the room, so I just kept watching for a few moments. After a time, I realized she wasn't moving at all. And then I began to wonder if my eyes were playing tricks on me and perhaps she wasn't in front of me at all. But I had heard my bedroom door open, hadn't I? I wasn't really sure of anything now so I reached over to my phone to click on the lock screen for a little light to see in my room. When I did, nothing was there, and my door was closed. I was, of course, startled at first, as I had been convinced something was there. I thought perhaps I just hadn't heard Robin leave the room, and it was too dark for me to really see her do so. So I rolled out of bed with my phone in hand, opened my bedroom door to look into the hallway, and I could see that Robin's doors were also closed, as usual. I listened outside of her room and could tell by her breathing that she was most definitely asleep. So now my one theory to what I saw had been negated. I took the opportunity while awake to go to the bathroom while clearing my head. I realized that I may have had a reaction to the new meds I was prescribed by my doctor earlier yesterday. He had upped my dosage to relieve my headaches and vertigo. While sitting in the bathroom, I did a quick search to see if possibly hallucinations could be a side effect of my medicine. 
and, while rare, it appeared that yes, that could be the case. Obviously, I don't like that as a possibility, but I accepted it and went back to bed, still a bit shaken. This morning, my bride was at the kitchen table doing her Bible study, and after talking for a while, I asked, Hey, baby, I don't think you did, but by chance, did you get up last night and come into my room to check on me, maybe around 1 a.m. or so? No, she answered. I was about to ask you the same thing. Thanks for listening to Weird Darkness. A quick reminder that everything in the Weird Darkness store is now 30% off and will remain so through this coming Sunday, August 19th. You got coffee mugs in there, tote bags, uh, computer cases, phone cases, t-shirts of course, and a whole lot more. And like I said, it's all 30% off only through this coming Sunday. And if you're a Doctor Who fan, the uh, blue Doctor Who t-shirt that I have on the front page of the Weird Darkness store, that is on sale as well, but it's only going to be available through the rest of this month and then it will disappear from my site. So you might want to grab that while you have an opportunity. And no matter your age or stage of life, you know, we're all looking for ways to reduce stress in our lives, right? I mean, we live in a, in a harried, hurried, fast-paced world and stress is coming at us from all directions. Well, I have a free eight-part series to de-stress your life and you can find the download right now on the right-hand side of WeirdDarkness.com. Just click on that less stress sign that you see there in green. Again, it's absolutely free, so the price is right and you get to relieve some stress at the same time. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Dagda9 says, The Best Podcast. If you never subscribe to a podcast, you'll want to make an exception for this one. I love listening to Darren's voice, but even better, each podcast has a variety of stories. There have been times I have been too terrified to move the story was so creepy. You will not be disappointed by this podcast. Subscribe now. Ms. Silla in Sweden says, This podcast is great. I can't sleep without listening to Weird Darkness and his voice is so nice. It's scary, it's creepy, and it's Weird Darkness. And then Doc SCO in the US says, Paranormal, supernatural, nonfiction, this is the way to go. I just recently got hooked up when I desperately was looking for more interesting paranormal shows when I go for a couple of hours driving on a daily basis. Very creepy stories, mostly nonfiction, which I prefer. Keeps me awake and fully entertained. No explicit language as well, so the rest of the family can freely enjoy the shows. Definitely keeps my very energetic kids up in attention, at least for a couple minutes. I hope to listen to your shows for many years to come. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. I currently have two videos that are only available to patrons, one about the freaky ways 15 famous people have died, and another Weird But True video about Robert Wadlow, the tallest man on Earth. Really interesting stuff about him. And then all of the Weird But True videos that have become public 
are on the website. You can find them by going to WeirdDarkness.com and clicking the Weird But True page. Patrons also get exclusive content, like chapters of horror and paranormal books I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. I'm currently narrating the audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can hear all the chapters, starting with Chapter 1 and the rest as I record them, when you become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. And a big welcome, by the way, to Leanne Reynolds and Robin Gallian. They are both my newest patron members. Thank you, ladies, for joining the Weirdo family. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Monster in Washington was written by Brett Tingley. Justice for the Dead was written by Micah Hanks. My Brother Was Dating a Witch was submitted to WeirdDarkness.com by Joe. The Elisa Lamb Mystery was written by Brent Swanser. Last Night's Bedroom Visitor was written by yours truly for WeirdDarkness.com. The Fort Monroe Tragedy was written by Robert Wilhelm. And Wilderness Workers Ghost Stories was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family social group, get stories that I didn't use in the podcast, and more. I make sure there is something new every day at WeirdDarkness.com. You just gotta surf around sometimes to find it. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember, Deuteronomy 3 verse 22, do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. <laughs>